The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. You can be seated, church. I want to invite you to join me in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, and we're beginning a new series preaching through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And so I recognized right before I came up on stage, um, that maybe there's some connotation since we jumped to the last book of the Bible that maybe we're reaching the end of the world. And sometimes it might certainly feel that way with the transition that we're in right now, but I assure you that's not my intention. Um, instead, what I, I want to do, and I hope this encourages you, is um, if you received a bulletin this morning, which I'm sure most of you did, you'll see a handout in there that kind of shows a roadmap for where we will be going um, for the next seven Sundays. This will carry us through Easter Sunday as we preach through the seven churches, seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. What I hope this encourages you in is to show you that things will still continue to go on. Church, we are still moving in a direction. We still have a mission to accomplish in the Great Commission. And just because we may be in this period of transition as the Lord has led us into, it does not mean that we will stop on this mission. It does not mean that things will cease or that you will see things stop around you. We will still take care of one another. We will still be moving towards this common goal of seeing all the nations come to know and worship Jesus Christ as their Savior. You'll see this in real practical ways in the missions opportunities that we already have in the neighborhoods, whether that be Good News Club or our ladies who are gathering together to pray and have their Bible study uh, this afternoon and, and many other opportunities throughout the week, and I want to encourage you to the best of my ability. I know we are in a period of transition, and I know that some of you may even feel uneasy. You may feel like we don't know what's coming next, but we are still going somewhere. We're still moving in a direction, and don't let this season be an excuse for you to step back from what God has for you and where he's calling you to serve and to give and to play a part in the role of the church. And so in a very small and hopefully significant way, I pray that you see that we will continue on this mission as we begin this new series. These men that are included on this list of the deacons and I, we've worked together to uh, compile this list of trusted individuals who will be delivering the word of God over these next seven weeks. And I pray that as we look at these seven churches in seven different situations that we would be encouraged by how Jesus interacts with each one of these churches and the situations in which they find themselves. I pray that we would be encouraged at how Jesus specifically meets these churches in these cities where they are and has a word of encouragement and even to some degree a word of, of rebuke, a word of warning, of caution against them. Since we'll be spending a significant amount of time in this book of Revelation these next two months, what I want to do this morning before we even get to our passage in Revelation chapter 2 is I want to lay some groundwork down so that the rest of what we talk about makes sense. Um, I realize that whenever we come to Revelation, there can be a lot of fear for some of us. The book sometimes seems like it goes off the rails. It's talking about a dragon coming out of a sea and a mysterious lady and fire and, and scorpions that are shaped like horses and all these weird things that come in light of this letter. And what I want to caution you against is the fact that if you don't understand what's going on in the letter, then you can be thrown off into the deep end with some wild interpretations. 
Instead, what we need to understand about, Revel- about Revelation is that we need to play by the rules of the book in order to understand what's going on. So let me give you an example. Uh, my brother-in-law and I have recently taken to playing the game of chess. And uh, just about every week when we're together, we find time to play a game of chess together. Now, the thing about chess is it's an incredible game of strategy. Um, it's strategy in its purest form, um, we've come to realize. But if you forget the rules of chess and try to come up with your own rules and to play by those rules, the game doesn't work very well. You have to understand that the king can only move one spot in a certain direction, and the queen and the bishops, the rook, and the knights can only move in certain ways. The pawns can only do certain things. And if you forget those rules, the game doesn't make any sense. It's unable to be played. And in the same way, as we approach different books of the Bible, we must play by the rules of the genre that's presented to us. If we try to play by different rules, then it's not going to make sense and we're not going to see what God has for us in the book. So we have to lay down some of the rules that we must understand Revelation and these letters that we will be looking at for the next seven weeks. We have to lay down some rules so we can understand what's going on. And the first thing is to recognize the genre of Revelation. While Revelation is a letter to churches, specifically it looks like a letter circulated among the seven cities that you see in the graphic on the screen, we have to understand that this is not an epistle like Ephesians or Philippians. It's not a letter in that regards. It's a letter in the genre of apocalypse. Apocalypsis is the Greek word used here. What's important to know about it is that there is a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism used in this letter on purpose. There's a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism. That means that we're going to look at some things this morning that if we took quite literally would be incredibly confusing. But if we understand that there's symbolism and imagery going on, they'll make more sense. So let me give you an example. We're looking at seven letters to seven churches. And within these seven letters to seven churches, you're going to see that the letters, for the most part, are structured around seven words. Seven words, not specific words, but think phrases. So we have the word of greeting, the word from the Son of Man, the word of praise, the word of weakness, the word of warning, word of reward, and the word of music. Now, for the most part, these letters are going to go by these seven words, these seven structures, seven different points that Jesus is making to these churches. When one point is left out, it's meant to draw our attention to it, to actually emphasize it. So it's still kind of there in its absence and may not be in this exact order, but there are still seven words included to seven churches through these seven letters. We'll see in verse 1 of chapter 2 in just a moment that these are the words of, the, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand among the seven golden lampstands. There's repetition of this number seven. And to play by the rules of the genre that we, we're in, we must understand that this number seven is not just repeated for no reason, but seven is a divine number. It's meant to emphasize the sovereignty of God his control and power, how he is the divine one in control of everything that occurs, who holds the churches in his hand. The number seven being used so often is meant to emphasize it. And so those are one of the rules that we see, and I'll point out others as we walk through the passage. So we have to play by the rules of the letter that we're in so we understand what's going on. The next thing we need to understand about these seven letters is that this letter uh, is meant to be passed from city to city. We're going to see that it's addressed to Ephesus in our passage this morning for this letter, but that there are realities to which this is for all believers, that this is a word of encouragement, 
a word of caution against praising and worshiping the wrong things, a word of encouragement and that God wins in the end. The information from John's vision is given to all believers, and God has preserved this letter, this revelation for us because there are things in this letter God wants us to see. And here's where we can begin to focus on our passage this morning to the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was the closest to the island of Patmos. So John is the author of this letter. He received this revelation, this vision, while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. God gave this vision to him and told him to record everything that had happened. And so just geographically speaking, Ephesus, this first city of the seven letters, is the closest to where it's believed that John was when he wrote it. But what's also important about Ephesus is that it was a hub city of sorts. There were many ports. It was located very near to the sea where a lot of shipping was done. It's believed that the city had a population of around 250,000 people in its day. It was the center of trade and contained temples. So all of the different gods worshipped there because many people from different cultures would come in and would long to worship their false gods. So they were in the midst of a culture with worship of false gods with a lot of people, a lot of commerce, probably pretty chaotic in that day too. It was a city of influence as well. We see a lot about Ephesus in the Bible, beginning in Acts chapter 18. And what I want to highlight to you this morning as we look at the planting of Ephesus is God's sovereignty in the church at Ephesus to bring about faithful leaders for a time, to have them faithfully teach and serve him, and then to bring in another faithful leader for a time and how God used them to continue to grow the church and to accomplish the mission that he set forward. So in Acts chapter 18, we see that Priscilla and Aquila actually planted the church Paul brought them through the city of Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, and after Paul preached there, he sailed off and left Priscilla and Aquila to continue to grow and to cultivate the church, to share the gospel, and to train disciples. Paul later returns a short time after and stays for two years to preach and disciple believers in Ephesus. We see in Acts Paul's ministry was actually so successful that one of the silversmiths in the city, Demetrius, gets upset at the fact that he's lost business. See, the gospel comes into Ephesus and turns the city so upside down that these silversmiths who would make the idols and the other things to these false gods suddenly lost business because no one was worshiping the gods anymore. So Demetrius, one silversmith, gets a crowd around him and gets them angry at Paul and they begin to riot in the city. Others in the city see what's going on, don't quite understand, but think, hey, a riot, and jump in and begin the riot, and the city's in an uproar by the end of the day. The Bible says that most of them were confused about what was actually going on. A city leader comes out and quiets them down, and the main point behind this story, this reality, is that gospel absolutely turns this city upside down. People who once worshiped these false gods came to Christ and were discipled and grew in him to such a degree that it turned even the economy of the city on its head. Later, after this story, we see that Paul also encourages Timothy to stay in Ephesus after Paul had left. This is in 1 Timothy 1.3. And that Timothy was also invested in the church there. From the early writings of Arrhenius, we also learn that John himself served in the church at Ephesus. And after him, the early church father that maybe some of you have heard before, Ignatius, was an elder in the church there as well. 
This church in Ephesus had the resume that churches today would be jealous of. They had every big name possible. Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, Timothy, John. Later, it would even be Ignatius. These are people that we still talk about and learn from their reflections of the gospel today. But the reality is that even though they had some of the big hitters of the faith in the beginning, some of the superstars, if you will, that worked in the church for periods of time, this still does not keep them from having a word of warning pronounced against them. They still fell into a temptation that can catch even us off guard today. So with that being said, with that groundwork laid, I want you to join me in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the, golden, the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate also the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There are three main truths that I want to bring forward from the text this morning. The first truth is that Jesus the Lord holds the church in his hands. Jesus the Lord holds the church in his hands. The letter begins with a word of greeting. This is our first word that we see, and word from the Son of Man. This imagery is meant to build on the context of the verses immediately before. We see in verse 1 of chapter 2, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, uh, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember that seven is a divine number, and here it is pointing to Jesus' divinity, his sovereignty and power over all things. To fully understand these verses, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to back up with me to the verses right before. In Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 20 for a moment, and those will be up on the screen as well. And we're going to read about this description of Jesus and, and talk about what it means so we can understand what's going on. So just back up to the verses before. Revelation 1, verse, tw uh, verse 12 begins like this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face, uh, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." If we look at the imagery in these verses literally, not playing by the rules of this genre, we can be incredibly confused because the picture of Jesus that we see here is that he has some nice clothes, a nice sash over him. He has white hair like wool, like snow even, but then he has bronze feet and things kind of go downhill from there. But if we play by the rules of the genre as we should, and we understand this to be imagery, we can see that John is pointing to some incredible truths here. For example, we see that Christ is present even in the midst of the persecution the churches are facing. We see this in verse 12 and 13 in that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Remember, we find out that the lampstands represent the churches to which these letters are written. And it's not that Jesus is far off from them, but he is walking in the midst of them. He is there with them as they're facing the difficult times. The long robe and the golden sash that Jesus is identified as wearing, those are representative of the priests in the Old Testament, building on the imagery given there. The white hair that Jesus is described as having recalls Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. There, the Ancient of Days was described as having hair like the whitest wool. His eyes like flame indicates his ability to see through hypocrisy. Remember in our letter, in the verses that we just read that they stood against false teaching. Jesus, his eyes like flames, can see through the false teaching and the hypocrisy. We're going to build on that in a moment. His feet like bronze. Those are meant to show stability in contrast to feet of clay. He is the king of kings. Think about also the feet of bronze building on the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. In that dream, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue made of different types of metals. From Daniel's interpretation, we know that this was representative of the different kingdoms that would come in after King Nebuchadnezzar would take over Babylon, then they would be taken over as well. And this not only builds in the fact that these believers are living under the reign of one of those kingdoms and the Roman Empire that King Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt of, but even more than that, we see that that dream ultimately pointed forward to the king of kings whose reign would know no end, who would never be conquered, who would be stable, secure, and sure, never challenged in his might. Another imagery that we see in these verses is that Jesus has a voice like many waters. This is meant to recall Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 2. There it says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. There's even more in those verses, even more imagery, but the point I think that John is trying to make is very clear to us already, that Jesus is the divine one who is in charge. He is in control over all things. No one can challenge the might of Christ. The picture of the power of the resurrected Jesus is seen in its fullness. It it culminates in verse 17 of chapter 1. When John sees him, he falls at his feet. Now, if we see this, we can think, awesome, like John falls at the feet of this powerful Lord and Savior whose face shines. But what I want you to do is to pause for a moment and consider who John is. 
See, John is one of the people who was a disciple of Christ during Jesus's ministry on earth. For those three years, he learned directly under Jesus's teaching. He was one of the closest ones to Jesus. John saw Jesus even after Christ's death and resurrection when Christ walked on the earth again for those 40 days before he ascended. John was familiar with Jesus, as familiar as any human could be with Jesus. He walked with him. He knew him. And still, at the sight of Christ in this vision, in this revelation, John falls at his feet immediately. This man, Christ, that he walked with, God in the flesh that he knew, he was still driven to worship immediately upon the sight of him. We can't rush through this. We can't rush through this first verse of chapter 2. We have to understand who is giving this letter, who's giving these words. It's Jesus, the one who is in control over all things. Jesus, the powerful and divine Savior. The entire central focus of the book of Revelation, throughout its entirety, is the glory of God. That view in this letter to the church of Ephesus specifically is the lordship of Christ. We see that Jesus is Lord and all things are in submission to him. And if we rush through this greeting, we'll miss it. Everything else in the letter is said in light of this truth. Keep in mind also in chapter 2 verse 1, there's a different word used for the word holds In verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars. It's even different from verse 16 of chapter 1 where it's used there even though it's repeated. Now our English translations can't quite bring it through in its fullness. The idea of holding is the complete idea of holding as we would understand it. A firm grasp. The idea here is that this is the Lord, the divine one, Jesus, who holds the churches in his hands and nothing can take them out of his hands. Nothing can challenge him or even attempt to pull away his authority from the churches or his grasp of them. There's security in his hands. And even as he gives the word of warning later in the letter, it's in light of the security that the churches have in the hands of Christ. Jesus is the powerful Lord. He is our Savior. He is in control. This truth is even true of us as a body of believers at Abner Creek. Because even as we go through this period of transition where things can kind of seem unknown and from our perspective, we don't know what's going to happen next, we can find encouragement and security in knowing that Christ is in control, that the mission of God is not built around a single person or a single personality. It is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ the Lord. The church at Ephesus knew this. They had Paul come through and teach for two years, but the church wasn't built on Paul. The church was built on Jesus Christ, the firm foundation. He is in control and his mission will be accomplished. This is the one who is addressing this letter to the church in Ephesus. The second truth I want you to see in this letter this morning is that love is the foundation of our faith. Love is the foundation of our faith. We see the word of praise and Jesus has for the church in Ephesus in verses 2 and 3. They had successfully withstood the attacks of the false teachers. When they tried to come in and lead the church astray with their false teaching, the church of Ephesus tested it and didn't give in to it. They held firm to the gospel. They did not change course. 
It's almost like what we saw in the last few weeks in Jude. We see a church faithfully practicing this. They had tested these false teachers, found them to be false, and rejected the teaching. And this isn't something that's a very small ordeal for Ephesus. This seems to be a marker in their church history, a significant event. It's a reason why Jesus is addressing it. Immediately following this word of praise, though, in verses 2 and 3, we see this word of warning in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What was the one thing they had forgotten? They had these superstar, these great leaders, these heroes of the faith from our perspective that I'm sure most of us who are believers would give anything to sit under their feet of teaching for five minutes that we might hear from them. They had all of these guys lined up faithfully serving in the church. They had false teachers come in and recognize them and pushed them out and held firm to the truth of God. So what would be the one thing that Jesus would caution them against? And it was that they had forgotten their love for him. They had forgotten the love they had at first. This is significant. This is incredibly significant. The church seemed to have it going on from the outside. Anyone looking in would think that this church was a marker, a bastion of health. And it's not necessarily that the church was completely unhealthy. Man, this might have gone unnoticed for some time. They themselves, they might not have realized that they had abandoned the love they had at first. They might have thought everything was going great. But Jesus leans into this issue of love. It's important enough for Jesus to address it. Why would Jesus address this issue? Everything seems to be going on from the outside. Why is it important that Jesus encourages them to come back to the love they had at first? Because what does Jesus want from us the most? What does Jesus want the most? He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. Jesus is after our hearts before anything else. Jesus is not after our right actions. Jesus is not after our false religiosity. First and foremost, Jesus is after our hearts. I know this all too well because I catch myself falling into this from time to time. I could catch myself, if I'm not careful, spending my life trying to earn the approval of God. Even though I know Christ has died, that he is the only way of salvation, even though I am trusting him to save me, on a real practical level, in the way I live my life, if I'm not careful, I can find my motivation being that I am trying to earn God's approval by my right actions. And some of you may realize that you're doing this as well. For some of us, we might be at church every time the doors are open. We might argue against any non-believer in the name of Jesus and strike down their false teaching on the spot. That not a single lie gets past you or false teaching against Jesus. You might even act rightly because you think that's what Jesus wants out of you the most. If you can give some money in the plate and you can show up to church every time and push back against every false teaching, then you'll be good to go. But all the while you're doing that, you've never given Christ your heart. You've never loved him. Instead, you're trying to earn his love through those actions. So you're striving and you're trying to do all these right things that God might look on you and approve of you because you've done so much right. And all the while you're striving to keep those rules, the reality is that you're exhausted. You're searching for satisfaction and you're not finding it no matter how many times you're at church, no matter how much you give, no matter how many times you're sharing the gospel because you never gave Christ your heart first. 
All these other things are actions trying to earn his approval. And the entire time, Jesus is calling you into a relationship with himself. Everything that we do, all of those good things, like coming together as a body of believers for church, like giving towards the mission of God financially, proclaiming the gospel with others, all of those are not used to earn our salvation, but come out of a changed heart. They come out of a changed heart. That this love is what separates us from the Pharisees that we see in Scripture. It's what would separate the believers at Ephesus from the Pharisees. See, in John chapter 13, Jesus gives his disciples this commandment. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So often... Jesus would do an incredible thing. He would do a miracle. He would give a sign that would show his power over sin and death, that he was the son of God. And the Pharisees would completely miss it for the sake of what they believed to be right teaching. And some of you may even be hearing my words now, that Jesus is after our hearts first and foremost and is not concerned with anything else. Is not concerned with whether or not you come to church or give or are sharing the gospel because you haven't put your heart behind it. And you may say, well, yeah, okay, Matt, let's, let's calm down a little bit. Those are all important things. But, but listen to me, we will get to that. But first and foremost, we have to address the issue of our hearts. We have to address the issue of our hearts because nothing else will fall in line until Jesus has our hearts. Nothing else will fall in line until Jesus has our hearts. Take this as another example. I was doing some reading this week and, and listening to a sermon. Uh, one of the sermons I listened to was on John chapter 5. And um, the sermon was by Matt Chandler. And I think he did such a great job of emphasizing the reality of what goes on in this passage. So if you look at John chapter 5, what you see is there's the pool of Bethesda located where Jesus was doing his ministry. Now this pool of Bethesda would have the waters stirred up in it every so often. And basically the way it was believed it would work and kind of John clues us into is pretty much the first person to get in is healed. And so you can imagine you've got this pool in this structure. Who are the people who are going to be closest to the pool? All of the people who cannot walk, who are crippled, who are lame. I mean, this is not a pretty place, but it's surrounded by these people who just want a shot, an attempt to get into the pool and to be healed. The Bible says that Jesus enters into this place with his disciples and there laid an invalid of 38 years, a man who could not move. His life was laying on that mat, hoping to get into the waters. We're clued in with some dialogue between Jesus and this man. This man is incredibly depressed. He's frustrated because every time the pool is stirred up, he cannot get into the waters to be healed. He's not fast enough. For 38 years, this has been his reality. People walking by him, stepping over him, completely ignoring him. To everyone else, he was invalid. He was on the outside. Jesus looks at him in love and in compassion and heals him. He tells him, take up your mat and walk. And the man immediately does it. He takes up his mat and he walks. He is healed, this man, for 38 years who laid there in the midst of everyone watching at the word of Christ picks up his mat, and walks out. Everyone would know who this man was. Imagine him walking into town, carrying his mat, and everyone doing double takes. This is the man who's been trying to be healed? What happened? Well, Scripture recounts that this man runs into some Pharisees. There's no doubt that the Pharisees would have known who this man was. 
They knew exactly who he was. They knew about his condition. And you know the Pharisees' first words to this man? It's not lawful for you to pick up your bed and walk on the Sabbath. They missed the point completely for the sake of what they believed to be right teaching. Why? Because God didn't have their hearts. They did not love God first and foremost. And so absent of that love, these right actions are the only thing brought forward. And they had done everything except love others. It's in light of forgetting the love they had of first that Jesus offers the next word, the word of warning. In verse 5, he says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, turn back to the works of love. These are not the works as in these works separated out from the gospel, separated out from changed hearts. These are works of love. So here's where the balance comes in for those of you who are legalists like myself who are wired a bit more legalistically. Jesus is not encouraging them to turn back to works alone and to try to stir their love for God in works alone, but rather in works of love. There's a distinction here between works and works of love. What this is not and what Jesus is not telling them to do is not to turn back to works like what I would call the social gospel. That is this, where we go out and we do good things for the community. We might feed people, we might provide clothes, we might provide other things that they need, and we do those things, but the one thing that's missing is an explicit proclamation of the gospel. So instead, what we're doing is we're putting some clothes on people, we're giving them water or food, and we're like, Jesus loves you. We never actually proclaim the gospel and the need to come to Christ for salvation, and that is not doing anyone any favors. It has to be a both and. Because if you separate the gospel out from the things that you do serving others, then the only thing that you're doing is you're giving them good clothes and full stomachs and sending them to hell because you're not proclaiming the gospel. If you do not proclaim the gospel and you just feed and clothe people, they're just going to hell with good clothes in their back and full stomachs. What Jesus is telling them to do is to turn back to the works of love, to do those things, to feed those who need it, to give clothes to those who need it, to do all of these things, but to do so remembering the love they had at first, which means the natural result is that the gospel is proclaimed. The need for Christ and salvation in him is proclaimed. And what this means is to do the works of love you must have right doctrine. To do the works of love, you must have right doctrine. Once Christ has our hearts, in order to worship him, we must know what he is like and what he expects from us. Otherwise, we're not doing the works of love that Jesus warns the church at Ephesus to do in the first place. It's why Jesus wants our hearts the most, because love for Jesus is the foundation for doctrine, the truths about Jesus that we learn. Once Jesus gives us a new heart, Everything else falls in line. So let's look at this real practically. Let's take, for example, Allie, my wife, which, sorry, I didn't tell you you're being an example, but let's say I get it in my mind. I'm going to step up my game as a husband, right? I'm going to do an A-plus job today. So I'm going to write her a sweet note that she can wake up to. I'm going to have a a dozen roses, and I'm going to have a nice hot cup of coffee, which is her favorite thing in the world, ready for. So I I get all these things ready, and as I'm writing the note, I take the note out, and I begin to write, Allie, your blonde hair is so beautiful, and I can't get over your blue eyes. Now, 
For those of you who don't know, that is not what Allie looks like at all. So when she sees the cup of coffee, the roses, and she begins to read this lovely note, am I going to be an A-plus husband for the day? She's going to be, and who is this too? All right, I'm going to be in big trouble. It's going to do the exact opposite of what I intend to do. Why? Because I'm not basing my love for her and showing that in the truth of who she is. I'm not complimenting things that are true about her. So she's not going to receive that as the love I want her to receive it as. I need to compliment her accurately to encourage her in the right ways. And so when it comes to Christ, that's why we can't say, well, if we love God, that's enough. We can throw doctrine to the side because no, that's not the way it works. Jesus is to be worshiped in the right way. For us to throw truths about God to the side and worship in whatever feels right is to do no different than to write a letter to your wife describing someone completely different. It doesn't do any good. We see in verse 7 that Jesus hates false teaching in the same way that the church did. The Nicolaitans, he says in verse 7, excuse me, verse 6, that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. They rejected the false teaching and that was right. They held to the truth. But love has to be that foundation. For the life of me, I cannot remember where John Piper said this, but I distinctly remember his quote, that right doctrine heaps logs onto the flames of worship. Right doctrine heaps logs onto the flames of worship. That as you learn truths about God, it will stir up your affections for him and the result will be worship and adoration and praise at his name. And love is the foundation for that. The final truth I want you to see in this passage this morning is that loving Christ means we will be united with him. Verse 7 gives us this word of music. What it is is this hymn-like statement that's included in just about all of the letters to the churches that anyone who has ears hear, kind of repeated there, followed by this promise. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. One of the things that is so beautiful about this promise, to the one who conquers, you're going to see over the next seven weeks that this phrase is in every single one of the letters to the churches. This is one of the threads, the themes that's connecting these letters. To the one who conquers, there is always a word to the one who conquers. Think about that. Of all the ways that he could describe believers in himself, describe his people, he describes them as the one who conquers. There's this connotation of warfare with it. This fight for our passions and desires because the Christian life is not easy. It is war. It is a fight for our passions. It is a fight of learning to be more like Jesus and learning to love him more, of rejecting the sins and the temptations which want to pull us astray and fighting to walk in step with him. Ultimately, we see the one who conquers is the one who's found in Christ. This idea of conquering is carried throughout the book of Revelation as the fight against evil is finished by Christ alone. Revelation shows the downfall of Satan very clearly, but the reality is that the book gives far more attention to the victory of Christ and of the church. Nothing can overcome the Lord who holds them in his right hand and is working among them who is in their midst. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can keep it from happening. So to the one who conquers Jesus says he will grant them to eat of the tree of life. 
This is the culmination of Scripture. This is what all of the Bible has been pointing forward to. Here in these first verses of the last book of the Bible, we're seeing an allusion all the way back to what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, where we last saw the tree of life. There, God had exiled, banished Adam and Eve from the garden after they had sinned against him. He had pronounced the curse of sin, what the effects of sin would look like. And the chapter concludes with chapter 3, verse 24 says, He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The last time we see the tree of life, it's guarded. It's guarded by appointed uh, warriors given from God to protect that tree, to keep people from it. But here in verse 7, it says the one who conquers, he will grant the right to eat from the tree of life. This tree was blocked because of our sin and our rebellion against God. In order for the tree to be accessed again, we had to be made right with God because the tree of life is eternal life with him forever. So in order to be able to eat from the tree, we had to be made right with God and God. And his kindness not only protected us from eating the tree, which would mean we would be in eternal rebellion against him forever, but protected us from it and provided his son as the way of salvation. This theme of redemption carries through the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus living a perfect life, dying in our place, being raised to life again to rule and reign as we see him in Revelation chapter 1. To back up for a moment, we talked about playing by the rules of the genre that we're in. And one of the biggest rules in Revelation is you have to have an understanding of the Old Testament for it to work. Because Revelation and the New Testament are not meant to be separated from the Old Testament. But they are the culmination, the reality of this redemption. So real practical example is the fact that there are 404 verses in Revelation. And of those 404, 278 continue, uh, contain an allusion to the Old Testament. They continue the story of redemption. They finish it. This is not a letter meant to be separated out. This is not a right to a tree of life that's meant to be seen on its own. But this is Christ saying that he will have the ultimate victory and that his people will be united with him. We see the tree of life one more time in Revelation at the very end of the book where John records, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. God didn't just cut down the tree of life. He redeems and restores as a picture of the gospel, a picture of how we are redeemed, brought back to himself and get to dwell with him forever. To the one who conquers, the one who loves Christ, who does not abandon the love that he has at first, who heeds the warning and repents and remembers what is his reward? The thing that he loves most, Christ himself. That's his reward. They receive Jesus the one who loved them and gave himself up for them. This picture of the tree of life is meant to draw us into the reality that all of scripture was meant to point us to Christ at every turn, that he would be the center of everything, that he is sovereign in control over all things as our Lord, that he wants us to love him and is after our hearts and desires our love and that those who do love him, our Lord and Savior, 
will get to spend eternity with him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is the truth of your word today. God, that you are after our hearts, that you desire right relationship with us and have made a way for that right relationship possible. God, I pray that you would help us, those of us who are tired, who are weary from trying to keep rules and trying to earn uh, your love. God, I pray that you would keep us from doing that and that you would lead us to humbly submit our hearts to you. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. As we enter into this time of response, maybe you realize that you're one of the people who've been playing the church game your whole life. Maybe you've, you've brought your kids to church because that was the right thing to do. Maybe you've just always gone to church because that's what your parents told you to do and you just wanted to keep doing it. Maybe you've thought there was something good and you liked what you heard while you were at church. But one of the things that you realized this morning is that you've never actually given Christ your heart. There's never been a point in time where you've submitted your life to Christ and trusted him to save you from your sins. There's never been a point in time where your relationship with him began. You just kind of always did it. Maybe you realize that you're living trying to earn his favor and his affection. You're trying to earn the approval of God when Jesus has already earned that approval for you, is willing to give that to you. You could be delighted in and satisfied. Maybe you realize this morning you need saved from your sins. If that's so, I'm going to be upfront and I would be happy to talk with you about what it means to trust Jesus what you need to do to give your life to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. And maybe you've been walking through a rough time for a while and you don't understand why God is bringing you through this. You don't understand what is going on. And I don't have the answers for that. But the one thing I do know, the answer I do have that I offer to you is that just as Christ holds those churches in his hands, he holds us in his hands he has a plan for us. He's in control over all things. Nothing catches him by surprise. And he has a plan for what you're walking through. He has a purpose behind that to grow you in your love for him. He is with you. If you need someone to pray with you as you walk through that time, I would be happy to pray with you. Whatever it is that the Spirit is leading you to do, I would encourage you to do that this morning. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.